Hello, and welcome to our podcast. It's 2020 Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. We are proud partners with the Sign Institute at American University. We have two great guests this week who we'll get to in just a minute. But first, please subscribe to 2020 Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. James, before we get to our first guest, you're, you're doing fine out there, right? As well as it can be expected under the circumstances. That's all anybody can ask. That's it. Um, Norman Perlstein, for four decades, has been one of the most prominent journalists in America. An extraordinary career. He was managing editor of the Wall Street Journal and chief content officer for Bloomberg News, where I had the privilege and the joy of working for him. And for 11 years, he was the editor-in-chief of Time magazine. He's now the executive editor of the Los Angeles Times, where he and the owner, Patrick Soon Chung, are restoring that paper to its glory days. It won two Pulitzer Prizes this month. Norman, thank you for joining us. And tell us how you're directing coverage uh, from your apartment, I gather. Los Angeles is a hotbed. The state has a mandated furlough requirement. It must really be challenging. Well, it is. Uh, Our owner um, has a career um, of uh, creating vaccines and uh, using your own cells to fight illness, and he has been totally immersed in it. Uh, He came to visit with uh, several of us on the 6th of March and just really was the first person to explain the science of the virus and why it is so communicable. And so as a consequence, we closed our building and went to lockdown on March 11th. And we've all been operating uh, from outside the building, most of us from our residences, although there are obviously several uh, journalists who are out on the street every day continuing to report the story. We'd never done anything like this where everything was done remotely. Uh, The Zoom video conference has replaced uh, any other kind of conversation. And so far, we've been able to, I think, deliver um, a very uh, high-quality product, but every day is a strain because the level of risk and the level of uncertainty is is unlike anything we've seen. And not only are there technical issues from working like this from outside the building, but as is certainly true of every other uh, part of media, the, the advertising model has just blown up on us with this complete freeze on, on economic activity. Oh, it must have. You know, I just wish that uh, uh, I wish Donald Trump uh, would have heated uh, Patrick back on March the 11th. We'd have been a lot better. But that was a you know, that was a, a great warning for you. Uh, when you, you you do have reporters, though, who are still out reporting the story, uh, Norman, how do you do that? Do you alternate them? Do you you obviously want them to be safe? Well, for, for one thing, we encourage people to work from home wherever possible to uh work the phones. Uh, most of us at some time in our life have had to rely on on the telephone rather than in person. But obviously, uh, our photographers and many of our reporters only get a story by talking to the people they want to write about. Uh, we try to make that voluntary. We uh, 
we do um, provide uh, the kind of protection that you would expect uh, people to have before they go out. And uh, we um, really are just in frequent consultation. We have, we are blessed with a an editor from Metro, Shelby Grad, who um, is just one of those unique figures who really knows the story of Southern California unlike anyone I've ever run across. And be it a an earthquake, a mudslide, uh, fires, um, he has really uh, got the drill down and has a staff of people who react to crisis and the unexpected in ways that amaze me um, every day. So that you mentioned the two Pulitzers. Actually, what I was just as proud of this year was that we were uh, finalists in five categories and three of them were coming out of the Metro staff. Boy, that's great. You know, I'm a, I'm a digital subscriber and reader and the stuff really has been good. And this terrible pandemic disproportionately hits those most vulnerable. And some of your really terrific stories have involved migrants, kids with COVID-19 and how they're being treated, Norman. Well, that's been an important part of the story uh, up till now is just trying to quantify um, the uh, the virus and to chronicle uh, the places where uh, where it has made a, a real impact on people's lives. Uh, we have a wonderful reporter in Seattle, Rich Reed, a two-time Pulitzer Prize winner with the Oregonian before he joined us, who was really one of the first to dig into the nursing home in Kirkland where uh, so many of the early fatalities were being recorded. And when you when you have journalists like that, then you're you're a happy beneficiary. So I want to uh, take the experience and normally I've asked you first, but Albert, I certainly want you to chime in. Let's assume this goes the way that it, it kind of looks like it's going where you listen to what Dr. Fauci said and literally every other public health expert uh, you know, we'll try to open up some, we'll have a reoccurrence and we'll just be in this kind of not very pleasant dance. And let's just assume that we have a vaccine by next March. Don't know it, but let's assume that. How, Norman, how do you think, given all your experience, American life or culture will change if it will as a result of all this? And then, Albert, you've written on it. I'm, I'm interested to see what you have to say. Well, I think in, in the shorter term, meaning the last couple of months, I think, if anything, there's been a tendency which has been exacerbated by the White House to believe that this is an interruption from normality and that there's a quick return from it. As the reality kicks in, as we actually start learning to listen to people like uh, Fauci, I think that you start seeing um, very significant changes in behavior so that where the initial shock to the economy is uh, the massive unemployment that has come from out of nowhere overnight, I think that just as there's the likelihood of a second wave of infection, there's a second wave of uh, changes in the economy that will really be a reflection of consumer behavior. That um, obviously, issues such as age and experience do affect how individuals react. But I think for a very large p- 
part of the population being the first one to get on an airplane, to go to a baseball game, uh, to want to go to a restaurant, um, you know, is something that is going to come slowly. Um, and so everything from did I really need to buy that suit to can I get a haircut every other month, uh, I think will be a kind of unconscious but uh, important reaction to this extraordinary change in circumstance. And um, and just having to live with the anomalies and the uncertainty, uh, I think, will just make it that much tougher. A very good friend of mine out here runs a successful restaurant here in, in New York, and he says, um, under the rules of the SBA, I can't get that loan until I've reopened, and neither state will let me reopen. And um, that's the kind of thing that that um, a society has to respond to with a much better safety net than anyone in Washington seems to think is important right now. Yeah, just quickly, I agree. The uh, For those who expect a quick bounce back, the uh, Congressional Budget Office forecasts unemployment will average 10.1% next year, next year. And that's assuming that we make progress. So uh, uh, this uh, this is this is going to go on for a while. James, go ahead. So, so you spent time Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg. Now you're in Los Angeles. Is the kind of New York centric, Washington centric view of the world when people say that in other parts of the country? Is there some legitimacy to that? Well, there is, uh, and that's with the acknowledgement that there is a part of uh, California that is, you know, very much in sync with um, a lot of uh, the East Coast um, uh, biases and so forth. But I think there are differences, and we've tried to, um, if you will, identify and articulate them in explaining how we are trying to revive the Los Angeles Times. I think there's a very big difference when you think about the Pacific century and the role that Los Angeles would play in it as opposed to say an Atlantic century or an American century in the mind of Henry Luce of the 1940s, which was very much about focusing on Europe. Uh, if the Washington Post start you know, its day by saying, democracy dies in darkness. I think that when you're in Los Angeles, your instinct being a part of a the creative capital of the country is that the future is now. And I think you see that in the major corporations of California. You see it in uh, certainly the uh, individuals and the smaller companies and the huge immigrant populations that so distinguish us uh, from uh, a part of the country where, if you will, the immigrant populations are now in their fourth generation. So, so a big part of, I don't say conservative or right wing, fill in the blank, is California is a place that is just rotting. There's poo poo on the streets everywhere. It's just overrun with immigrants. Everybody is leaving California and moving to Texas. It, that doesn't seem to comport with what you think the reality of modern California is. Well, I think it's both. And, you know, but when you're a state with 40 million people and GDP 
equal to that of the fifth largest uh, country in the world in, in terms of economies, uh, you have a, a fair amount of diversity and variety, even though uh, Hillary Clinton uh, beat Donald Trump by 25 percentage points in California, we should not lose sight of the fact that more people voted for Donald Trump in California than any other state. So um, it's if you're in Los Angeles, which is certainly a progressive city and a progressive state, uh, you may lose sight of the diversity of California itself. There is no doubt that uh, it is a state where regulation and government involvement is a part of our culture. And sometimes, um, you know, last year, the legislature passed a thousand new bills, and I've yet to find a federal agency that doesn't have a counterpart in Sacramento. But at the same time, it's a tremendous magnet for talent. It's a draw for people who believe in the future. Uh, we do a good job on accountability journalism, but we actually could be much better if we also wrote about innovation and inspiration the same way. Norman, you mentioned the Pacific Rim uh, a moment ago. You spent a lot of time in Asia, going back to your Wall Street Journal days spent a lot of time in China, which is now Trump's villain, the culprit responsible for this whole raging pandemic and deaths. Um, give us your sense of, 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 of how China is going to play out in this scenario. Well, first of all, um, I think you, you point a finger on in terms of this election. Uh, I think that if Trump is successful in um, you know, reinventing prosperity is just around the corner. Trust me, 2021 is going to be unlike anything we've ever seen. And he can get some traction with that kind of misdirection. Then perhaps the China card is played a little less aggressively. But if you assume that going into the fall, uh, his um, base is smaller, the concerns about the economy are greater, and you realize that his whole playbook is really based on, you know, three things, what he calls truthful hyperbole, uh, overnight ratings, and finding someone else to, to hold responsible for anything that doesn't work. That inevitably takes you uh, to uh, more tensions between China and the U.S. Um, the one weakness in that is that there's actually bipartisan support for bashing China, and and some of it is certainly justified. It's a very different society, a very different economy. It uh, it does not have uh, the kind of respect for rule of law, for human rights, for treatment of the individual, or for a kind of transparency in government, which we don't always get, but which we think we're entitled to. Um, having said that, the interrelationships that have been built up over uh, the last uh, four decades or so are such that um, we have to be careful that the party that is most damaged by escalating those tensions isn't the United States. I mean, just to look at the virus itself and how complicated it is having started in China and uh, the kind of misinformation and 
confusion that can be sown about the source of the virus and so forth, we do have to keep in mind that China um, manufactures uh, almost all of the antibiotics that we use in the United States. China uh, controls, if you will, um, the population of pigs that are most in need for blood thinner. Uh, I could go through an extraordinary uh, list of the uh, you know, exports from the farm belt to China, the imports that make uh, so much of our high-tech work uh, are part of those kinds of relationships. And when you decide that you can live without that or that there's too much of a national security risk from having that kind of dependence, there aren't easy options that replace it overnight. And in many ways, I think the biggest fear is a nationalist China that is of a size and strength that says it doesn't need us uh, as much as we are saying we don't need it. Well, yeah, I get the impression, as I think you know, I have a first cousin who's lived over there for, for in Southeast Asia for 50 years. And uh, he said, if you talk to most of the people I do business with, he hadn't traveled the last two months. Uh, he said, now in the last year or so, uh, they see China as more the future. They used to always try to play off the, um, the the Americans and the Chinese. He said, now they're tilting more to the Chinese just out of um, uh, real politic, if you will. Well, and oddly, because their foreign policy is much more mercantilist than ours is, if you will. There's not a, so much ideology as there is, um, you know, ways in, in which um, we can expand China, but it, it's not, it's very different, if you will, from, say, the territorial ambitions that Russia displays in, in Ukraine or, you know, our own sense of what foreign policy should be responsible for. So, Norman, my history is a little flawed, but, you know, at the end of the last century, at the beginning of this century, we said, well, if we engage China, They'll get the sweet nectar of freedom and they'll expand rights and everything else. That was certainly an aspiration. Um, and, right. Uh, that you can point to places where the Chinese would uh, say things that could be interpreted that way. But you're talking really about a very old authoritarian culture. Um, and I think that, uh, if you will, those kinds of aspirations for China will take longer than um, any of us would expect or necessarily like. But even in this period, with the outbreak of the uh, virus in uh, Wuhan, if the people who were studying uh, the um, social media in China were clearly seeing levels of unhappiness, dissent, um, discussed with government that you could not have imagined even a decade ago. And while that's not uh, growing out of some fierce commitment to human rights, um, nonetheless, the consequence of individuals um, knowing what goes on in the rest of the world and not thinking that uh, the China model is the only model has risks for, for every government. But in the short term, I think the response from China to the kind of pressure coming from the White House and the, the response that we should be most concerned about is going to be one of espousing a greater degree of nationalism rather than uh, 
if you will, disgust with and desire to change its own government. Wow. Uh, so what, what I guess what I'm really was driving at is that it, it seemed to me that people around the Pacific Rim kind of understood this and they did this TPP, which looked like at the time a pretty good idea to deal with Chinese mercantilism, as you call it. That's correct. TPP was a deal we did with 19 countries, um, very much with that in mind. Uh, but if, as you'll recall in Philadelphia in uh, 2016, uh, the entire Bernie contingent of the party had signs that only had one thing on it, no TPP. Right. And of course, it got like, you know, it was a help negotiate it, right? Right. And who then walked away from it. On the whole, it was a massively smart thing to come up with and a massively stupid thing to not implement. I mean, we had everybody was on the, as I understand it, all of the, the Vietnamese and Australians and New Zealand and the Koreans and the Japanese and the Thais and the whatever, but we're going to all be part of a this trading block deal with, with, with China, which is a threat, as is, is, is Madeleine Albright points out. It's an adversary. We had a plan to deal with an adversary, and we stupidly just shit can the whole thing, which is dumb. Um, yes, I think that uh, there was no doubt that, you know, our own nationalist instincts were on the rise at that point, and there are reasons for that that you know go to broader issues in our own society such as income inequality and education inequality and again um, i think it is always easier to point the finger uh, away from the problem if you have some responsibility for creating the problem but i agree with you completely james yeah i, I think it's so that there was actually a, a clever way that a lot of people came together to deal with what is an issue, and that's their economic aggressiveness on, on every level. That's, that's right. I mean, but, you know, it's one of those things where there's no doubt that for many years and a part of national policy in China was theft of intellectual property. It's not the first country that was true of. We accused the Japanese in the 70s, the Koreans in the 80s, but they were they were viewed as allies in ways that China was not. But we are now at a stage where there are significant technologies being developed outside the United States. We are, are not the only uh, country, um, you know, that is capable of innovation. And so that's why, if nothing else, we should be trying to figure out how to make better use of its technology just as they did so well with ours. Norman, before we let you go, let me just, uh, you know, one or two very, very quick questions. You mentioned earlier, you know, what a tough environment uh, this was uh, uh, for a major newspaper. And uh, newspapers with an eroding business model have gone through hell in the last couple of decades. Is this pan with this pandemic, is it going to be the likely death knell for, for a lot of papers? What well, I think it will accelerate trends that have been in place all along. Um, in our case, having been part of uh, the Tribune company from the time that Times Mirror sold the LA Times in 2000 until 2018, we lost out on a, a decade of investment in uh, 
technology, in uh, the ability to create new products for new audiences on new platforms. And so we were more print-centric and more reliant on print than I think many publications were um, as recently as two years ago. And uh, trying to catch up in, in this kind of economic environment is very tough. But I think the Los Angeles Times itself uh, actually is in a good position when markets come back. Uh, we are moving aggressively in these areas. But when you think about uh, newspapers across the state, um, whether it's uh, the McClatchy Group, which, uh, as you know, bought Knight Ritter um, in the middle of the last decade, um, now in uh, having, uh, you know, certain to file for bankruptcy, or I guess has already um, begun that process. Um, when you look at Alden Capital and its ownership of publications like the San Jose Mercury, which has, you know, a tenth the staff it had 20 years ago, um, uh, you know, the the outlook for uh, the kind of journalism that people have been accustomed to for a very long time, I think is difficult. And where that's most reflected is in Sacramento, a place that not many people cover very aggressively, um, but which, as you pointed out earlier, with regard to the questions of people de debating whether they want to stay and do business here or not, uh, Sacramento is hugely important, but the ability to cover um, the state house in a way that makes it relevant to your own community is is something that gets harder to do every day across the state. Well, one advantage you have, uh, Norman, is you have an owner uh, who is smart, has deep pockets, and has a commitment, uh, and also has a great editor. What does Patrick now say about this pandemic? Patrick considers it, well, he I, <laughs> I have to be careful answering that because for the last month, he has been locked down himself but where he's locked down is in his lab where he's been working on trying to not only create a workable vaccine, but the manufacturing capability to produce uh, billions of doses. So um, I all I can say about it is that from the beginning, he thought it was um, far more serious than a lot of people who thought it was just a, a kind of bad case of the flu. Um, part of it is that he was quite familiar with uh, what was required to, to, you know, treat HIV/AIDS, to treat SARS um, and MERS, and so when he uh, looks at these kinds of things, he he feels that um, anything short of total social distancing, anything uh, short of a vaccine, um, will not necessarily address the ways a fast-moving uh, virus capable of mutating the way this one does, you know, can affect communities. Well, Norman, we know you have to get back to putting out a newspaper. Uh, uh, we can't thank you enough. Well, I look forward to speaking with both of you anytime, and when circumstances permit, come out and see us. We will do that. And I, James, I've always said that wherever I am, wherever he is, Norman will always be my editor for life, and uh, I cannot thank you enough, and um, uh, be safe, and we'll talk soon. You bet. Thank you, Norman. Next time I see you, be at Dan Tanner's. We'll have some drinks. Okay, and we'll talk <laughs> soon. Thanks again, guys. 
Wow, boy, that, you know, he's one of the most interesting people I've ever known in my life. Uh, uh, and, and, and what a, can you imagine uh, over, over the last uh, 40 years, uh, all those incredible top jobs he's held and he's still going strong. God, it's just so much fun to just sit here in the middle of this and between noon and one o'clock and just have a conversation. Right, right. With somebody that, with that kind of insight and experience, I mean, you, know, you can meet a lot of smart people and you meet a lot of experienced people, but I don't know if anybody is a combination seen more, covered more, been more places and been as insightful as Norman Pearlstein is. And I mean that. No, I really mean that. No, I, uh, I, I agree. Um, all right. Young Pack is a senior fellow for East Asia Policy Studies. Earlier, she was a senior North Korean analyst at the Central Intelligence Agency. She has written, written a compelling new book on the North Korean dictator becoming Kim Jong-un, which the LA Times, Norman Perlstein's paper, just gave a great review. No one is more knowledgeable about that nuclear-armed rogue state uh, than Dr. Pack, and we are delighted you can join us. Thank you so much, Al. Thank you, James, for, for having me on. This is a terrific book. Let me tell you, I came away, and as you know, uh, James and I are both political hacks, but I, can't, I, I love reading it. I came away with this impression that this guy, this is an evil regime. Uh, Kim Jong-un is every bit as brutal, if not more so, than his grandfather and father, but he is one shrewd dude. This is no dummy. Yeah, that's um, that's what I wanted to do. Um, and if you just look at the the title, the cover art of the book, um, you know, it's it's it, it's an actual picture of him. Um, and we are looking from above, you know, it's kind of a metaphor for, you know, the CIA or the CCTV or, or the, the fact that we are watching him. Um, and he's casting the shadow um, as he walks forward. We don't know where he's moving. We can't see his full face. And I love the cover art because it conveys so much of that um, uncertainty, uh, but it also presents him as a multidimensional figure uh, which is exactly what I wanted to do with this biography. Yeah, he he played Trump pretty well during these tense times of of uh, the last couple of years, didn't he? Well, I'd say that um, he probably wasn't. He probably was surprised, like all of us were, when uh, President Trump said in March of 2018 that he would be willing to meet with Kim. And this is something that no U.S. pres no sitting U.S. president has ever done. Um, and North Korea was quiet for the for the following month. I think they were trying to figure out what to make of this thing that fell on their laps. Um, and so, you know, when we look back on the past, you know, two a little over two years, uh, we we're still at that status quo where North Korea hasn't really given it hasn't given up any of its nuclear weapons. They continue to develop their capabilities and demonstrate them. Um, their human rights violations are still on course. Um, and, and they've shut the door on dialogue. So we haven't moved the needle very much, if at all, on uh, on our goals of North Korean denuclearization. How, how do you th how do you think Kim today sitting over there? How do you think he views the situation? Their economy is as awful as ever. Uh, he still has his nukes. Uh, he went through that uh, time of 2017 where uh, he and Trump were threatening each other with destruction. Uh, and then you had the 2018 summit meetings. How do you think Kim sizes things up right now? You know, um, I would say that, you know, he he would look back on the in the past two and a half, three years, and he'd say that he's he's done a lot. He's accomplished a lot. 
Um, he has faced down the U.S. president, um, as you mentioned, the fire fury and locked and loaded of 2017, which was really tense. And, and people thought that we were headed toward a war by by miscalculation, pretty much. Um, but and despite having uh, conducted three intercontinental ballistic missile tests and a huge uh, nuclear test in 2017, um, these would have been red lines, you know, a year ago, two years ago, uh, uh, before the before it actually happened in 2017. Um, but he's done those things. He has shown those capabilities, capabilities, um, and yet what he got in response was a summit, uh, many summits with the U.S. president, the Chinese leader, as well as the South Korean president, and he has suffered few, if any, repercussions for his actions, which were highly, highly provocative. If generally, the American public sees this guy, and it, it, he's like almost a cartoon character to people. His hair is funny, looks funny, et cetera. And, you know, they love to make fun of him on the daily show of the night, late night TV. And people look at North Korea as this kind of half-starving, you know, people that have been subjugated to, to some horrible life which I'm sure is part true. But one, he strikes me, and particularly after reading your book, is anything but a cartoon character. And two, whatever issues that North Korea has, and I, I would defer to you, the multitudinous, they have some talented people there. I mean, they, they can make rockets and bombs. I know they can counterfeit money. I, I mean, there's a, a technical class in that country that's not a, a, on the level of a third world country at all. Do, do you agree with that assessment? Yeah, James, that's exactly right. Um, that uh, that when we when when the general public or even I would say even government officials talk about Kim Jong Un, um, they think of him or see him or even describe him as this cartoon character. Um, and and you know in in many ways, uh, Kim Jong Un and North Korea does invite that kind of caricature. They have this very um, they have this very blustery language. The socialist architecture and the and the you know out of this world kind of um, socialist realist art um, their blustery language the way Kim looks all of that looks and the and the parades in which all of these soldiers are marching in complete unison it presents this you know it's North Korea is ripe for caricature and I think and I argue in the book that that would be a very dangerous thing to do um, to to see this country with nuclear arms. Um, as as a cartoon character that can be swiped away or laughed away, but that in fact that is not the case. Um, and James, you're absolutely right that um, it, it, it that North Korea has this uh, has a very capable expert class. Um, and and it's amazing, right? How if you have the political will and the resources to pull it uh, pour into something, how you can develop these uh, these very advanced, sophisticated weapons. And I'm not just talking about the nuclear weapons program. I'm talking about the cyber capabilities that North Korea has has developed over the years under Kim Jong Un. You know, it, it it strikes me for whatever historical reason that the Korean Peninsula has really got a lot of talented people. <laughs> I mean, I you know, there's a lot of talented places in the world, and I, I mean, North Korea has been really, really subjugated and I can't imagine how much talent it'd have if it was allowed to flourish in the way that South Korea has. But that's a very interesting part of the world. And I, I think you've really 
done a lot to bring it to bring it to people the reality of what they're faced with. Yeah, you know, and and South Korea is, um, you know, is is one of the top economies, and you know, we've seen what they've done with the coronavirus. You know, they're they're the they're you know touted as the success story, the model of how a country should deal with a, a, a pandemic, um, and the peninsula has been divided um, for. Um, for 70 years. And, you know, and, and that's something that, you know, North Korea sees this, the Kim dynasty sees what South Korea has been able to do. It has, South Korea has vaulted past uh, North Korea in, in the military realm, in the economic and the political, um, all of the successes that South Korea has. And, the, and one of the key reasons for North Korea's self-isolation is that they see their, their existential enemy is just 35 miles away. Um, and that, you know, if the if there was any kind of re- reunification, that they would be swallowed up whole by the entrepreneurial expertise, the scientific expertise, the military, the governance expertise of South Korea. Um, and so when we look at North Korea, we have to be, I think we have to understand that North Korea isn't just afraid of us, but they're also afraid of being gobbled up by South Korea. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't, I don't see inter-Korean engagement or economic projects having the impact or the effect that I think the the South Korean government thinks that it will have. Jung, one of the really fascinating points you make in the book and alarming is that Donald Trump talks about uh, condos on the beaches and you know building a, a you know some kind of economic powerhouse in North Korea. But Kim doesn't really want that. He doesn't really want, he doesn't even want peace uh, because that really threatens his very existence. Yeah, uh, Al. So um, I think what, what I what I tried to incorporate into the book is my super duper fancy CIA analyst training, um, you know, how to do structured analysis, how to figure out if you are thinking about something the wrong way or how to take into account various perspectives um, and thinking about things in terms of scenarios. And when we look at Kim and when we look at how to incentivize North Korea, we think of it in terms of our language, which is, well, of course, everybody wants to be rich. Well, of course, everybody wants a beachfront condo. Well, of course, everybody wants American entrepreneurs, you know, pouring uh, foreign assistance and development money into the country. Um, but in fact, Kim perceives that as a, a threat to his regime. It's a threat to his control. Um, and so what I wrote in the book was that um, President Trump, you know, is is prone, like many people, prone to think uh, in terms of how we would behave or what we are we are used to. Um, and so Trump has been a, a real estate person in, in New York, a businessman. Um, and, and my sense was that he approached Kim in a way that a New York City businessman would approach a contractor or potential business partner. Or a sub, you know, or, or some sort of uh, person who whom he's doing business with in New York, but Kim has has different views. He has different uh, drivers. He he's not driven by money. He has it. Uh, we don't know how much uh, millions or billions of money that he has stashed away in his reserves. Um, but they have. He has the wealth. Um, what he wants is for people to for the for to be able to keep his nuclear weapons. Um, be able to use them to threaten uh, his neighbors in the U.S., um, but also to, to get the sanctions lifted so that he can develop the economy the way he wants to develop the economy in North Korea. So let's just say it's a hypothetical. Joe Biden is elected president of the United States. He's got 100 things he's dealing with. North Korea 
fires a missile, comes within 20 miles of Guam. And I said, okay, we're going to have, we're going to talk to this guy. And they called you and the Secretary of State says, get on Air Force One. We're, we're going to Bangkok or Hanoi or wherever. And he's getting ready to go in a meeting. And he says, what are the three things, remind me of the three things that I have to know and keep in mind during this meeting? What would you tell now President Biden? Um, so if, if the president was going in to see Kim Jong-un, you're saying. Right, right. And you're a part of the, and he looks at you right before he's going in. It's just his translator, Kim Jong-un, and that translator. What are the three things you want him to keep in mind during this whole meeting? I, I would say that one, he's going to bluster and talk tough, um, or at least demonstrate strength because that's all, that's his default. Um, and that's what we've seen so far of Kim Jong-un, that he absolutely needs to show confidence, even if he might not, he, even though he might not um, have confidence. And if you look at some of the other thing, uh, some other um, accounts of uh, negotiations with North Korea, they respond better to tough by the U.S. versus concessionary. Um, and so I would say go in tough. Um, but keep it keep the keep the dialogue lines open. Um, but don't go in with uh, with the sense that you have to concede um, as as a as a uh, as a baseline. Uh, in fact, it should be the opposite. Um, second, I would say that it, that that there is an absolute necessity to keep tensions under control, which is that you have thousands of pieces of artillery in North Korea that are pointed directly at Seoul, which is. Uh, which in its metropolitan area has 25 million people. Um, and, it, and any kind of artillery attack against Seoul would uh, decimate the population. You, uh, 300,000, according to the Congressional Research Service, or up to a million. And who knows what would happen if the North Koreans decided to unleash its extremely, its, uh, its substantial cache of chemical and biological weapons. So I would say that you know you want to keep tensions at bay and to make and to avoid a happy a, a, a happy trigger finger by North Korea because uh, you know we, we we would have potentially millions of lives at stake uh, in South Korea um, and and so and third I would say following that second point would be to to try to leverage that point you know don't let a crisis. Um, go to waste, right? Um, to try to use that as an opportunity to talk tough um, and to have a stern hand on on the on the crisis, but also to use that as, as an opportunity to demand things of him, whether it's um, continued dialogue, military tension reductions, um, or 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 uh, and how this would be, and how the U.S. can leverage this um, to argue with Beijing, North Korea's um, closest political and economic partner. That Beijing has to step in. So I think, I think those are the three things I would say. Um, don't you know? Come in tough. Come in swinging. Second, remember that that uh, escalating tensions would put uh, millions of lives at stake on the Korean Peninsula as well as in the region. And third, don't let a crisis go to waste and use that as an opportunity to demand things of North Korea, including dialogue. Um, or standing down its, of its military capabilities, uh, as well as to try to uh, get Beijing on board with, with our tough policies. Well, if this happens, I hope uh, then President Biden does take you uh, with him. Uh, you know, he couldn't do better. Uh, you know, uh, I really, we really appreciate your time. I'm going to ask you the toughest question 
that you have been asked during this whole time, Young, and that is which is more difficult, trying to analyze an isolated, secretive place like North Korea or sheltering at home during a pandemic with a six and seven year old? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm trying to do both. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm meeting success at either. <laughs> Well, you're, you're, you're terrific to take time out to be with us. It is a really a terrific book, uh, Becoming Kim Jong-un, uh, by the best when it comes to understanding this very uh, elusive and secretive place. Uh, Jong, thank you so much for being with us and stay safe. Thank you, man. Very, very, very impressive. Thank you. Thank you. All right, James Carville. Yes, sir. Um, we have a few minutes left. Uh, you wrote a very provocative uh, column this week that what Joe Biden should do right now, more importantly than picking a running mate or anything else, is that he should name uh, someone as his attorney general. Tell us about it. Yeah, I think that given what we see in, in the country right now, I think that, that of course, we got the gazillion problems that we got to deal with, right? climate deficit, um, covid political divisions, you name it. But I think the biggest problem we have is I think what he can do is set, make a real statement that the United States is a nation of laws. And there's one name that if he says is going to be my attorney general, in my opinion, would pretty much seal the deal. And that's Elizabeth Warren. I, I mean, she has such a brand and such a brand as a, as a kind of a really smart you know, middle-class oriented person who has the competence, ability, and, and a kind of courage to do what we have to do to, to make this a nation of laws, to, you know, investigate this criminality, wherever it is, and give us confidence that, that we have, we're going to be that kind of country. And I just think she just, no, no other name comes even close to hers, is making that statement as simply and as definitively as, Joe Biden would make it if she said, this is going to be my attorney general. I think the next attorney general is the most important selection that he's going to have to make. I really do. Well, I agree with that. Uh, This is one of our rare disagreements, at least on the timing. If you could persuade me this would really alter the election outcome, I'd probably sign on. But I I think people vote on fundamentals of candidates, of campaign. I'm I'm afraid to be seen as more of a gimmick. I I think she'd be a a good attorney general. I'm not sure if that's her forte. But most of all, James, what would worry me was it is not a far-fetched scenario to say the Democrats win four, pick up four Republican-held Senate seats and they lose one. Uh, That makes a 50-50 Senate. Uh, And if if Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker, who's a Republican, then gets to replace Senator Warren for four to five months, which he would, he'd pick a Republican, that would be a disaster for the first 100 days of the Biden administration. It's It's a risk. It's too big to take. And if you do have a landslide, as you think is possible, and you win seven or eight Senate seats, appoint her then. Well, I'll tell you what you can do. She can resign the seat in August. And he'd have to have an election in January. So you would be, I guess maybe he'd point out, not much going to happen between August and election day. And no one looks at her and says this is a gimmick. I mean, she's anything other than a gimmick. I mean, people, you like her, love her, don't like her, detest her. You know exactly who she is. And you just very seldom get a chance in terms of a, of a personnel decision 
to make that case. And, you know, and she can defend, she'd be a very good advocate for the campaign and for Vice President Biden and whoever he picks as Lieutenant Governor. And, you know, we got this thing with Senator Markey and Joe Kennedy, and I suspect that whoever loses that primary would be a pretty formidable candidate in a January election. I mean, but there's some risk in every in everything. I just think the value here far exceeds any possible risk. And I wouldn't do it in, in, in a lot of things. Everybody's always said, tease your cabinet out, and for good reason, people haven't done it. But this is a name that just strikes me is just bringing so much into the campaign that it it, it is... It, it, it's a risk worth taking. Well, I, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't know if it'll happen. If it does, I sure hope you're right. Just mark me down as skeptical, but we will see. I hope we don't get Martha Coakley to run for the seat. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, let me ask you this. Well, see, I'm still burned by what happened uh, with Senator Kennedy. I understand. I, I, I understand, you know, but there are ways that, that you can minimize this. You know, everything has risk, but but there are things you can do, and Massachusetts can do without a senator between August and January. Could be some big votes on judges and other things in October, and maybe even a lame duck session. But we, you know, we'll see how it plays maybe out. Some- Let me ask you this: You know, we've been talking about, we've been watching, reading, everything. Uh, you're out in the Shenandoah. What's cooking, literally? So I'm assuming people that watch this, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a recipe. Yep. All right, tuna fish. Tuna salad. Everybody likes tuna salad. All right. This is what you're going to do. You're going to get four cans of Wild Planet tuna. Only Wild Planet. No other brand comes even close. If you listen to Wild Planet, we'll take you as a, as a sponsor. But in, the next thing you're going to do is you're going to wash your hands like you just changed two diapers. Then you're going to take that tuna with your hands, with your really clean hands, and just massage it till you get it as close to powder as you can get it. Then you squeeze a lot of lemon juice. How much? I don't know. She had a, a big whole lemon, a, a lot of lemon juice, and crank out a lot of Lee and Perrins. I'd say like eight shakes. And then cover it with black pepper. Then mix that. That's going to take all the fishy stuff out. It's going to give you a real unami. It's going to give you depth and taste. Then put more finely diced carrots, I mean celery, and red onion than you think you need. Just a lot of it because it's going to give it crunch. Then put three heaping tablespoons of mayo, one heaping tablespoon of deli mustard. Gluten is fine. Doesn't matter. I use Zatarans because it's Creole mustard. And mix it together. Look at the constituency. What you want to do is put little enough where you want to add more mayo and mustard. You can't take away what's already in there. Then when you get it right to the right constituency, take some finely chopped chives, put it on the top, Serve that, you're going to be a popular person. I promise you. And it's easy to do. And it never fails. Tuna fish a la Carvel. I have never uh, really been around a stove indoors. I'm okay outdoors, but not indoors. So I can't begin uh, to tell a comparable story. The only thing I can say is, for those of you out there with grandchildren uh, who you can't see and you're worried about, 
we have a we've come up with a new way every weekend our daughter brings a two and a half year old over we go out in the parking lot she gets one of those clear cellophane uh tarps to put over him he's in a stroller he doesn't like that much but she makes sure he can't get it off and we spend an hour uh you got to adjust you got to adapt and uh, you know, if you're if you're a grandparent, start with James's tuna fish and then go to the cellophane cover with a grandchild. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what? We got our, our our sights have to be lowered a little bit during this thing. It's not like I'm going to get Clancy seafood gumbo. Here, you know? <laughs> Lord knows what we're going to come up with next week. But boy, I'll tell you, we do awful well to come close to the kind of guests we had this week. Oh, it was good. Interesting. Fascinating. What a, just a, what, what a way to spend an hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you learn a lot, and it's fun, too. So, James, I want you to be safe this week. Uh, you know, and I, again, thank our partners at the Sign Institute uh, at AU. And I thank all of you for listening to 2020 Politics War Room. And follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Politics War Room. And thank you for subscribing to the show. And uh, if you leave us a five-star review, we really wouldn't mind that. Uh, We will be most grateful. And for James Carville, I'm Al Hunt. We'll talk to you next week. And please continue to stay safe out there.